Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Theatrical Mustang Podcast. I'm your host, Woodzik, and my pronouns are they, them, and theirs. This is episode 159 with Han Van Skyver, an incredibly talented, multi-hyphenate human who I... You know those folks that you, like, find them through a friend on Instagram and through their stories, you are like, this person is so unbelievably cool that they need to be my friend. That's sort of the origin story <laughs> that we have going on here. And so you'll hear them talk about several different roles that they played as an actor. You'll hear them talk about their work as a composer and now as a filmmaker with the short web series Sad Han. The episodes are, are less than two minutes. You have to check them out. This is a little bit out of the ordinary for this podcast, but since we recorded this episode, Han's father has passed away. And so I hope you'll indulge me. I His obituary is the best obituary. Best obituary. That's a weird thing to say. I want to read you a couple paragraphs from it. And I hope that it's okay that we are going to dedicate this episode to him, to Harry. Harry loved to think and speak critically on a wide variety of subjects, always hoping to respectfully debate with those who knew more or saw things differently than he. He was accepting of and generous with all people and diligent in his efforts to be as kind and caring as possible. He had a dry and ironic sense of humor and was governed by discipline and whimsy in equal measure. He was ready at a moment's notice to drive through the night, carry heavy things, and do whatever else might be needed to support those he loved. Harry will be remembered for his irrepressible zeal for life, his pragmatism, his sense of adventure and humor, his dedication to his family and friends, and his enormous heart. In lieu of flowers, please take in the sunset or sunrise over the ocean or make a donation to Massachusetts Division of Fisheries and Wildlife in his name. A glass of single malt scotch may also be enjoyed in his honor, if you are so inclined. So pause the podcast, pour yourself a glass of single malt or another beverage you desire. Let's raise a glass to Harry and enjoy this episode with his offspring, Han. Enjoy. I am so pleased to welcome my guests today. They are self-described as an aggressively homosexual, non-binary, multidisciplinary artist creating tender chaos. Welcome to the podcast, Han Van Skyver! Hi, happy to be here. I'm sitting in Brooklyn right now with uh, uh, my cat on my lap. Very excited to join you today. Amazing. Thank you for being here. So, Pan, for folks who don't know you artistically, when you're meeting someone, like, say, at an opening night party, how do you introduce yourself to those experiencing you for the first time? <laughs> the, the idea of being experienced. Um, you know, it actually really depends on the situation because mostly I'm meeting people in the context of at, at working as an actor, but I'm also a musician. Um, I'm also a writer. So, you know, it depends a little bit on where, but I would say these days I say, oh, I'm an actor. I live in New York. And that generally tells them what they need to know. <laughs> Brilliant. I love it. Uh, 
some of the titles of the pieces you have worked on delight me to a ridiculous degree. And I agree with them. So no missteps here. Uh, can you tell me about the piece Tilda Swinton Adopt Me, please? I would be so delighted to. Um, this is a piece, man, I haven't talked about this piece in a minute. I made it back in like 2016, 2017, maybe when I was living in Philly. Yeah, it started as a joke with myself because, you know, I don't think I was totally out yet as non-binary, but like I was a very weird, um, you know, movement artist, sort of didn't feel like I was getting cast as regular ingenues. And a lot of people were comparing me to Tilda Swinton. And so I came up with the title as a joke. And then uh, I got very close with a, a collaborator named Nick Shepard, who now lives in California. But I saw Nick in a play and I emailed him afterwards and was like, hey, I think we should make a play together called Tilda Swinton Adopt Me, Please. I'll totally change the name. I think it's about twins who think Tilda Swinton is their real mom. And fast forward a year later, we debuted the show in the Philly Fringe. Um, yeah, and it was about twins and also hero worship and celebrity culture and also Greek mythology. Um, we played these adopted twins named Artemis and Apollo who grow up obsessed with Tilda Swinton and sort of self-mythologize to the point where they convince themselves that she's their real mom. Um, but it was, it was a fun piece. I did a lot of making my own work in Philly just as a way to kind of like expand my palette and, you know, think about what parts I might want to play. But yeah, that one is one people like that title. So. <laughs> That's great. Uh, can you talk a little bit about your, I love folks who are multi hyphenates and I sort of think that that's a bit baked into, well, I'm an elder millennial, but like, I feel like uh -huh. folks of my generation and younger who are theater artists have been, a lot of us have been opened up in really cool ways to be encouraged to create our own things, especially when, you know, the auditions are coming through or whatnot. What's your process like when you're generating new work, if you are open to sharing a bit? Gosh, yeah, sure. It's funny. It really depends on the project. I mean, I went to undergrad for creative writing and I thought I was going to be a poet, which is hilarious. And so, you know, I think early on my artistic practice came from just, you know, wanting to always being generating, always writing, always making music as a kid. Um, and then once I decided I wanted to pursue theater, I had a mentor tell me, you should make your own work, you know, as a way of practicing and also as a way of getting yourself out there. And so I started, uh, I, I wrote solo shows, um, yeah, and it's all sort of continued to just mash together as I've continued to work. So, you know, I've been a drummer since I was a kid, and I also play the piano and the guitar. And so, you know, sometimes I'm just writing music, and then that music becomes part of a play, or I'm, you know, what the hell else? I'll, I'll, I love to do movement work. So I'll, I'll be making like a dance for something, and then I'll be like, oh, I think that could be cool as a shape in a screenplay. <laughs> all of which is to say, like, it's very... I don't know if I feel bored, I want to die is the secret truth. And so a lot of it is keeping myself amused. And then the other end of the coin or the other side of the coin, I suppose, is <laughs> uh, <laughs> coins don't have ends, um, is, you know, just wanting to be working and wanting to have agency. So, you know, I started making my own work sort of as like a experiment when I was new to theater, you know, when I was like 21. And now it's a way of just keeping momentum. Someone told me once people like to hitch on to a moving train, which I think, you know, is very apt. And I find in my industry, a lot of folks are always like, oh, you're so busy. You're so busy. Oh my God, you're so busy. 
And, you know, it's like, well, a lot of it's just me, you know, diddling around in my, in my apartment making music or making little movies. And, you know, that kind of just feeds me and keeps me going and keeps the motor going so that when something else comes along, I feel a little ready. I don't know if I answered your question, but that's a little yep. bit about what I'm up to. You totally, you totally did. And I appreciate that. I can very much relate to the, sometimes I call them creative side quests, right? Like sometimes I think the juiciest thing is the thing I'm not quote unquote supposed to be doing. But if I follow that thread of in my grad school, Robert Spellman would call it aesthetic delight. Like that spark of curiosity, like there's some juicy random things that happen when one does that. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. That's wonderful. I love uh, that idea of, yeah, that you have to follow the fun. <laughs> so much of our creative lives, we don't get to control that. I think it's really important to have like a stupid thing you love. Even like, what is it? Doesn't Johnny Mitchell talk about how she paints because she doesn't like dealing with the music industry. And so she has that and that's safe. <laughs> yeah. That's, t- I love what you're saying about agency and i love Joni mitchell uh and also like i don't like to mythologize don draper more than he has been but that thing of (laughs) when you're striving really hard to achieve something creatively sometimes you have to give yourself the permission to do nothing or do something fun and i'm making don draper sound smarter than he is right now but i call that sort of the don the don draper methodology i am sounding way too fancy right now uh i love it love it i think it's true though i i I have like playwriting friends whose most successful plays are the ones that they wrote to avoid writing the other play you know it was it was the side quest and so it's always interesting to see like what pops up when you make room for it (laughs) absolutely absolutely i want to awkwardly transition now to talking about orlando uh, first of all, I want to say, do you think Orlando is the like non-binary equivalent of Hamlet? Like the role that all non-binary people want to play? Like to me, I sort of mythologize it like that. What say ye? Well, first of all, to say let's awkwardly transition is actually a great way to talk about Orlando. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, Orlando's a funny piece in that, that way. So I, I was, I played Orlando in the was it the William Fuller Fellowship production at Williamstown in 2019? And, you know, to my knowledge, I was the first out trans person to play the role, which is sort of a wild claim. But, you know, we were at a moment where people were starting to think about that and asking pronouns and, um, you know, sort of realizing that this play, this based on, of course, an incredible novel about a trans person was just that. But I think it's different than Hamlet in that, like, Hamlet, you know, I think is sort of always, I don't know what I mean. Hamlet, I think, has always belonged to who it's been, whereas Orlando, it's like, it sort of belonged to queer people. But I think, you know, we have the Tilda Swinton movie and, you know, she's someone who identifies as cis. I I think it's been like later in the game that we're now realizing, oh, we have this piece in plain sight that is expansive in this way. And it's a little weird, though, because it feels to me like we're sort of backtracking I will say when we did it at Williamstown, Sarah Rule was in touch with us and let us change a couple little moments just to kind of sharpen the languaging around some of the gender stuff. I guess the other thing I want to add, though, is, you know, Orlando is absolutely one of my favorite novels. Uh, one of my 
all-time favorite roles I've played. Like it was an incredible experience, but I don't actually know that that is a, I think we reduce what that play has to offer by making it only about gender, which is something just I found working on it. Like it's a, it's a play about a person who has, you know, chronic depression and loneliness and heartbreak and wants to make art and is always experiencing, you know, life with enormous joy and also enormous pain. And one aspect of it is that, you know, this person changes gender presentations sort of out of nowhere, but that's just one element <laughs> of the plot. So it's always, it's interesting to me now that it's sort of like the calling card. Yeah. Um, because it's so, you know, the other thing I think it's important to realize is like, it's from a very European, very white tradition, and it still seems to kind of belong to like thin, white, blonde, AFAB people. I say as a, a thin, white, formerly blonde AFAB person. <laughs> so I know there's a production about to happen in New York that Will Davis is directing with Taylor Mack playing Orlando. And I'm really curious and excited and just to see like what, what it might be like with a different, you know, body holding center. Well, I didn't know that till just now. That was a good gay gap mm -hmm. on my part. That's incredible. <laughs> yeah. Right. I'm like, what is it without, you know, the, the sort of the body, you know, we're imagining, which is already nonsense. It's all nonsense. It's a beautiful story about Virginia Woolf's, you know, love affair with Vita Sacco West. So it, it's steeped in all sorts of histories. And it's interesting to me the ways in which like it continues to become relevant. And, you know, I'm curious 20 years from now, will, will we think, oh, Orlando is a really reductive way of talking about gender, or will it bounce back again? You know, all that. It's funny how those things cycle. Absolutely. Before we leave Orlando, couldn't you, what was, do you mind sharing like what the most empowered moment for you was portraying that role? Or was there a moment where you yeah. really felt you had that sense of agency and empowerment in portraying them? Absolutely. It was directed by a incredible lady named Katie Lindsay. And then our movement sort of director was this wonderful person named Katie Rose. So we had two Katie's. And uh, there's a moment in the story and in the script when Orlando is naked in front of a, um, actually it's not stipulated necessarily that they're in front of a mirror, but when I was offered the role, Katie said, hey, I'm really interested in this moment of nudity or, you know, some variety of that. Um, but I, you know, I want, want to make sure you're comfortable. And we ended up building this moment right after Orlando sort of wakes up in a woman's body where I was naked on stage and I'd, I'd never done anything like that before. And, you know, it was very strange and awkward to build because of just the, another rules about space and who was watching. And we were all very aware, like, okay, this is a rehearsal to deal with the nudity. <laughs> but I tried to just make jokes about it. And then when we actually reached performance, it was this incredibly beautiful moment because we'd staged it such that it was me looking at my own body in the mirror. And so the body, the, the audience was watching me watch and deal with my own self and so it, it felt like it kind of subverted uh this idea that you know they were consuming my image it was more about me teaching them how I saw myself yeah it was a really remarkable experience and, and you know I don't know that I'll do anything like it again I hope to but um it was a very special piece and it was yeah it hit me at a wonderful time in my life so I just got chills. Uh, <laughs> I love. It was a oh no! Please, please go on. Just it was it was 
definitely the most fun I've ever had on stage too. Yay. Yay for fun. This is the second time we talked about fun, fun squared. <laughs> I want to, uh, I want to move now to your off Broadway debut in wedding. <laughs> One reviewer said of your performance described you as an androgynous Lothario. Brenna T- Turner is one of my favorite playwrights, and I love your friendship on Instagram so hard. Tell me about that show, that process, your relationship um, with the playwright. I, I want to hear it all. Oh, sure. I would like, we'll talk about this play forever. Um, I came to At the Wedding, actually, ironically, through Williamstown. The person who directed it uh, saw me in Orlando, and her name is Jenna Warsham, and I also worked with them that summer. Uh, on another show at Williamstown and Jenna invited me to be in a a workshop reading of At the Wedding uh, in what would have been late 2019, early 2020. (laughs) Um, And after that, I got attached to the project, which of course got delayed a bit because of COVID. Okay, so an androgynous Lothario. (laughs) Um, I played a character named Lee. I don't want to give away the play, but we follow around uh, a lesbian named Carlo at her ex-girlfriend's straight wedding and all the scenes are two-handers with Carlo and so every act every every track in the show is a lot of fun because you know you're just pinballing off of this lead who is played by the remarkable Mary Wiseman and uh, my character is sort of a a, a flirtation and a, a possible sort of other option for her at the wedding and so I do think there is a Lothario nature I do think that's accurate I will say I, I and since before I even you know came out as trans or knew what that was, I've been getting described as androgynous in reviews, and it's a very interesting thing. Um, you know, of course, this reviewer would have no way of knowing that because I don't always know what it means, and um, I don't always know that it's relevant to what I'm doing. So you know, in this case, I'm like, okay, you know, this is a role that they're trying to. Um, I hope will always be played by a trans person. And so the way we talk about it matters. And so, you know, marking them as quote unquote androgynous to me is like a little bit tricky because I hope folks who, you know, aren't androgynous, but still identify outside the gender binary feel like this part's available to them. That being said, it was also a wonderful review and androgynous Lothario is an incredible tagline, (laughs) Um, but yeah, (laughs) but no, Lee, that character definitely is a Lothario. There's someone who, um, you know, for their own reasons, is is trying to have a night of escapism and are definitely, you know, interested. But that was an incredible experience. You know, it got delayed because of COVID and then finally happened in 2022. And I met, you know, just some of my best friends working on that show. It was my first time in New York as a, you know, fully fledged MFA adult. And I'm still really close with Brenna. Brenna and I became sort of really just really good friends during the course of that play and I think part of it was that it got delayed and um I'll add when I first uh was attached to the show you know my character was bisexual but for all intents and purposes a a cis woman and it's sort of so funny Jenna the director called me before we went into rehearsals finally to ask if I was all right if Brenna um changed Lee to be non-binary which is like the first time anyone's ever asked me if I was comfortable playing a trans person. <laughs> but that was that was wonderful getting to, you know, sort of find that in the piece. And Brenna is also non-binary and um, it all sort of just made sense and took care of itself in, you know, a really delightful way. 
you, was that change made because you were cast in the role or was that something that was already a seed that was planted? Um, I think it was already a seed. I mean, Lee is sort of a um, like a transitory character. You know, they sort of slip in and out in kind of a mysterious way, which isn't to say that being non-binary is mysterious. It isn't. <laughs> um, but I, I think that there was a, a sense that they were... Um, apart or you know in some way kind of an other at this you know cis straight wedding which of course in the same way Carlos and other you know Carlos gay so it, it made sense to me technically the role was as it was first being written wasn't trans it was changed after I was in the role but it was actually let me just think about this the first time we were going to do it before it got canceled as COVID we hadn't made that change um, and so I wonder if we'd gone into rehearsals in 20 what it would have been 2019, 2020, you know, maybe we wouldn't have made that change. But after the pandemic, it was before we finally started again. And I, I think it was also something that Brenna was interested in bringing into the piece at that time. And I think felt, you know, why not? And, it, you know, we had an actor, me, who made sense in the part. It seemed like an opportunity. Absolutely. I love it. And I hope that folks who are listening to this can... Uh, <laughs> be enticed by that curiosity and gender expansiveness and yeah. in, in thinking about roles like that. Yeah, I mean, add, I don't think, you know, it can feel like scary to make a character trans, I guess, you know, well, that's a whole other thing I'm sure we could sidebar about. But, um, you know, what I liked about, in some ways, Lee's transness is that it's sort of just incidental, you know, that's not the core of who that person is you know the, the there's a lot of other things I could tell you about them in addition to the fact that you know Brenna wrote them as non-binary and so I, I love plays where we get to see trans people just living life and doing things in a way that doesn't necessarily have to do with their gender identity and so yeah that that was one of the things I loved about you know bringing that to at the wedding was that that sort of wasn't the point if that makes sense it it totally does it reminds me of an interview with Chaz Bono where he talks about his acting and he's just like, I don't, I don't like, I want to come to a role outside of my transness. And I think about him playing a really far right conservative guy in a series, uh, American horror stories cult. And like, he was absolutely incredible in that. And so I think there's something really empowering about Yes, we need more trans characters and we need to hire more trans actors, but I'm so craving those those roles where it's not completely centered on the gender of it all. And I think as a follow-up question to the, I really appreciated you talking about how being called androgynous can be sort of challenging for non-binary folks. <clears throat> what, may I ask, what would be some gender euphoric adjectives that you might offer those <laughs> perceiving your work. Yeah, I mean, well, it's different. I mean, things I like to be called, you know, I try to be, well, okay. So Lee as a character, I think is clever and charming and uh, front-footed and uh, seductive, which, you know, sort of some of that is is contained within Lothario. I don't know that androgynous has to do with that, but we tend to link sometimes andro androgyny to like a lasciviousness. And I think that's something I want to untangle. Um, and yeah. that's just like a deep cultural, uh, you know, stick we have. 
But, you know, instead of andro, I just don't know what androgynous means ultimately, because I, I often think we call, you know, women with short hair androgynous. I don't know that we call, you know, men androgynous as often, like it just, it has a, a codedness to it that I don't, that feels slippery. So yeah, I think instead of androgynous, they could have said, oh, I don't know, you know, striking. I always make fun. People always say striking when they don't want to say gay. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but no, I'm not coming. Androgynous Lothario is ultimately like an amazing phrase. And I don't, I don't, you know, Lincoln Center was very kind to me about just making sure reviewers, I think, knew the character was non-binary which stemmed from a conversation I had with Evan Cabinet, just saying, hey, you know, whatever happens, happens. I'd love to not get misgendered in the review. You know, do you guys have a protocol for that? And, you know, he listened to me and talked to the marketing department. And so I know that he made extra sure everyone knew not to misgender me in the reviews. But I think as a result, it meant people were extra aware. Um, And that's the blowback, right? As people are learning is then they feel, you know, extra nervous. So I, I also wonder if that was part of it is they wanted to make sure they were acknowledging, you know, that this character had a, a, a trans identity and inevitably as people are, you know, learning, there's some clumsiness. So I don't know. That's that on that. <laughs> Creditprintit.com. <laughs> but these things, <laughs> these things are complex and I appreciate you, you know, giving us some of the boots on the ground experience. I think that's very generous of you. So thank you. Uh yes. Hey, should we talk about an Oxford man now? Go we must. <laughs> I was thinking about it earlier when you were talking about, you know, characters where the point is their gender. So for, for an Oxford man is a, an incredible new play uh, by Else Went, um, a playwright everyone's going to have heard of in the next couple of years. And it is based on the remarkable true story of a, a man named Lawrence Michael Dillon, who was a real guy who was alive in the 40s, 1940s, 1950s, and ended up at medical school in Oxford because his brother dropped out and he was raised as a girl, um, but realized he was queer and then sort of slowly realized he was trans just by virtue of everyone around him thinking he was a man. And he ended up self-administering testosterone and conducting this incredible set of studies. But throughout the play, what's so remarkable is his, (laughs) he's so interested in life and love and and learning and you know the last thing he's thinking about is trying to disrupt society with his gender he's just trying to make it through the day and so even though it is a a play you know one could say about transness it's actually about someone just trying to survive and also there's enormous joy and life in the play even though there's a lot of sadness um, as well it's one of the things I love about it is it has, it reminds me of Orlando in some ways because it takes place over a long period of time. It has fabulous RP and other European accents and it has this bounce to it. And, and like I said about Orlando, you know, it's, it's someone who an element of it is them dealing with this, this gender situation, but it's also about, you know, all other aspects of this incredible person's life and experience. So yeah, I, I came to the play through Elsa's, wife emma who directs all of elsa's work which is well that's not strictly true but often they collaborate together and it's it's sort of amazing to behold but emma found me i guess on instagram i don't know this is how life happens now and and saw that i'd played orlando and thought i might be a good fit for an oxford man because of the similar elements of you know a character aging throughout the play and also heightened text and accent work 
And I've been in a couple readings of it now, the last of which was the Ted Snowden reading series at uh, MTC, Manhattan Theater Club, last March. Um, We did a big public reading of it, and Hari Neff was in it with me, which was really exciting, along with an incredible cast of just like top-notch, you know, New York actors. And it was really special. (laughs) Congratulations. Can we look forward to seeing further iterations of it is that sort of a stay tuned scenario it, it, it i appreciate the question it is very much a um an enthusiastic and hopeful and winking stay tuned scenario um i'm very hopeful that it will have more life and soon but you know the world of new york theater development is dark and mysterious to me also <laughs> sorry no it's funny you know i work a lot in in i'm very excited and and thrilled to work a lot in new play development and you know for me that's some of the most exciting work that's possible but it also means you know things end up in a pipeline and also you know contracts change and situations change and actors change and you know people outgrow things or people people's careers shift and so very little is guaranteed and it 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 can be it makes it very special when it does happen but it also means you know it can be heartbreaking as you hope a play will happen or wait for a play to happen or, you know, work on a piece and then it goes in a different direction. So, and that's just sort of, sort of part of it. (laughs) Absolutely. And before we leave this topic, I just like want to shout out that I think one of the, it makes me incredibly hopeful when we get these, I think also about the, the piece, the civility of it's Albert, cashier right maybe I'm not saying the last name right but you know a trans civil war soldier like I feel like it's a lovely antidote to anti-trans rhetoric that we're currently seeing I mean does it ever really go away but to just be like in a very loud way like we have been here for a long time and here's a really really queer play that has historical accuracy have fun if this ever crosses my <laughs> mind. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I feel like I'm constantly searching for uh, elders, you know, as a queer person, you know, as a, when I, before I came out as trans, you know, was sort of also just looking for older lesbians in, you know, literature and history. And I think that's part of the desire to self-mythologize sometimes is like, how do we place ourselves in this larger, you know, tradition, um, which of course has been around forever and, you know, is old as dirt and exactly with, with pieces like an Oxford man, you know, it's, it's so wonderful. And I think something else does really well with the piece is situating Lawrence in a history of queer liberation. Um, the piece begins and ends with a bunch of queer people on, I think on London Bridge, I should check this, but on, on the dawn of the millennium, we start there and then we go back and we tell the story of Lawrence and then we end back on the dawn of the millennium. And so it is about how progress happens and how we, you know, fit these narratives or forget these narratives in a longer stretch of sort of queer history. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I I want you to teach at every theater training program ever, please. Uh, oh, oh, I would love to. Hi, I'm, I'm available. <laughs> impossible, but aspirational. <laughs> I I think the sentiment of finding one's place artistically and in mm. history is a great segue into one of my new favorite things, which is sad hand. If folks <laughs> have not yet experienced it, I would call it 
very Buster Keaton meets Broad City vibes. Wow. I hope that is well received on your end. No, that's good. I'm, I've actually been in like a stew recently being like, what am I doing? What is it? So actually having it reflected from the outside is very, very helpful. And I love that. I love that. That feels exactly right. <laughs> good. Can you tell me where, where was the spark of inspiration for this and how can <laughs> folks find this and watch it? And I also want to say these are two minute episodes and it's really delightful when you just really need to reset your brain with something Hmm. very queer, which I think we all Ah. need from time to time. We do. Um, This is extremely kind. Um, Okay, so if you want to find Sad Han, it's on Instagram as sad underscore underscore Han. So you'll find it there. (laughs) I think I also have the hashtag Sad Han, which I don't think belongs to anyone else yet. But, you know, this ties a little bit to what we were talking about at the beginning about making your own work. And I have felt... So it comes from two places. One is feeling like a little stymied in terms of my own entrance into the world of recorded like film TV work and thinking, you know, I have all the tools at home and I have friends with cameras and I want to feel like I can dip my toe in on my own terms. And also that feels very scary. And so Sad Hand is like a bite-sized entry. And it also, the other way it came from is uh, I went through a really bad heartbreak um earlier this year and you know I was having a bad night and I wrote the first episode kind of this gets back to self-mythologizing too thinking okay can I make these like little sort of aw shucks sort of earnest but also you know undeniably weird and freaky and chaotic and queer like I am these little episodes kind of about me but kind of about this alter ego sad hand who's like a you know a gay hipster clown um, of some kind and also an actor. Um, and so, yeah, Sad Hair was born. I shot three episodes in one day with my friend Joy Berkland. She's a fabulous musician and videographer who now lives in Philly. And it was sort of an experiment. I had all this footage and I ended up editing it together. Um, literally before you called me, I'm working on some sort of, you know, perverse version of a Christmas episode because I, I shot some stuff while I was home for the holidays. But we'll see. We'll see if it coheres. But that's that's sad hand. It's been really fun to make these little essentially episodic shorts and put them online. And, you know, it was something I sort of did as a weird inside joke and challenge for myself. And it's been amazing that people have liked it. <laughs> Yay. Yeah, yeah. And the theme song is the theme song is really great. <laughs> oh my God. I'll, I'll send it to you if you want to look. Yeah. <laughs> no spoilers no spoilers go check it out y'all yeah, uh, the theme song i'll shout out is by one of my best friends uh, you know of my life and also one of my best friends from college their name is alex remnick they're a dj they dj under the name remnike and we made the theme song together again i feel like a lot of great art starts as a bad inside joke yes. <laughs> yeah much like tilda swinton adopt me please Anyway, seriously, thank you for your kind words about Sad Hand. I'm so happy you're enjoying it and I'm excited to see where it goes next. Definitely it is like Broad City, Buster Keaton, you know, sort of weird, weird world. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting. Like I have my notes in front of me and I did, I wrote Wes Anderson, but then I crossed it out because it's like so much more (laughs) than Wes Anderson. (laughs) But 
I well, Weston yeah. and I both love seafoam green, and I feel that is an important overlap. Like <laughs> just in terms of color palette, when I was making it, you know, again, I'm I'm new to thinking really seriously about uh, cinematography and and filmmaking, but um, I knew I wanted to just create a world that was fun to look at <laughs> as a person who's you know obsessed with color and shape and moving things around in my own apartment. It was also a way to kind of capture that. So I hope, I hope. I aspire to have the level of, um, uh, what's the word, the level of the aesthetic integrity of Wes Anderson. (laughs) Yeah. And I, gosh, I'm not like, I don't want to be like insulting of Wes Anderson. I just, there's something (laughs) I get folks. I understand folks whose perspective is that his work can be a little repetitive and self-indulgent, which this is not. Mm -hmm. And so I guess that's the distinction I wanted to make. The aesthetic reminded me of, and just like, it's so beautifully shot. So like, y'all, the aesthetic is just, I was really blown away by that. So um, this is much needed. I was like editing this morning being like, what am I doing? Um, And now I'm going to return to it with very, with, with, with enthusiasm and excitement. (laughs) Yay. So talking about camera things, excuse me, is a good stepping stone into you model, you do film and television work too. What can we look forward to seeing you on our screens in? So, okay, this is another sort of situation in which I'll be I'll be a little coy. Um, I shot my my first time on a really on a t- TV set properly on a TV set last. I think it was last February. So it was right before the shutdown happened, and I haven't been able to talk about it at all. And the show has now been announced, but they haven't announced the cast. And so I'm technically not supposed to talk about it, but I had a fun guest star arc on a, uh, what can I say about it? <laughs> um, it involves the supernatural and it involves the undead. And there was a lot of really amazing FX makeup. And I had a blast. Uh, I got to work with a couple actors I've really looked up to for a long time. And I learned a lot doing it. I think I shot on five or six different days. I've been going in recently now that things are, you know, starting back up again. I've been going back in to do what they call ADR, which is when you uh, re-record some of the audio for clips they're using, trying to sync up with your own dialogue just so, that they, can, so they can get cleaner audio. So I've been going into Midtown and, you know, seeing this footage of myself from a year ago, uh, and it feels like a, a weird dream. <laughs> but... Very exciting. I know that my mom's going to host a watch party, although I've warned her, I don't think she will love this style of TV show. She tends to not like violence. And um, I think this will perhaps be outside of her palette. Well, color us intrigued. I think that's a (laughs) delightful trail of breadcrumbs. And if it's... uh... Yeah, all if will be clear able soon. To, by the time this episode drops, we will include more information on this mystery project. It's so funny. Episode description. Like when I, yeah, when I was first shooting it, I think there was a call sheet that got leaked. And so the, the show has fans all over the world. And so I got all these follows from, you know, these accounts in, um, I think like South Africa and the Middle East, uh, where the show has a huge fan base. And it was because, again, like someone leaked a picture of the call sheet and then it's been crickets since then. And so even though, you know, I think maybe some fans internationally like know the guest stars for this one episode, it still hasn't been, 
you know, released on IMDb. So it's a funny little world. <laughs> it is. It is a funny little world in terms of when we know things and when we can let people know we know things. Right. Ugh. And with film, it's like even more, you know, I was talking with Oxford Man and, you know, at the wedding, like this new play development pipeline and then TV and film are their own thing because there's so much more money involved and things take so long to edit and produce. And so, you know, again, something I did a year ago, I'm now thinking, oh, people are going to see it and that will be what's relevant to them now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's transition again. What are you working on now as a playwright? What projects are kicking mm-hmm. around? Um, okay. As a playwright, I would say there's sort of two big projects in my heart right now. And I'm happy to talk about both of them. One of them is called Gay Narcissus. And the other one is called Dragon. What these plays have in common is both of the titles are in all capital letters. <laughs> uh, so there you go. But no, okay, so... Dragon is a play I started writing in grad school. It is about a um, 16-year-old girl who knows she's a dragon and during the course of the play starts turning into a dragon and um, then the dragon sort of burns down the theater and explodes the world of the play. But it's really a play about transness. It's a play for seven trans actors. They're all playing cis people. And in the same vein as, say, like, uh, you know, The Goat or Who is Sylvia, the Edward Albee play, where sort of the goat stands in for queerness. Um, you know, yeah. the idea of being a dragon is so fantastical and out there that, you know, even if there's a dragon right in front of you, people people can't see it. And so that is sort of the a brief um, explanation of that piece. I've, yeah, I've been working on it since 2018. I had a big reading of it sort of during grad school. It was part of a big incubator program and then uh, worked on it at New York Theater Workshop with Will Davis, who I mentioned earlier. And also Hari Neff. That was my first time meeting Hari. It was, um, she read a role in that play. And it's been cooking and kicking around development shelves for the past year. I think when I first told you about this play, I said, oh, I might shelve it. And it's not because I don't want to work on it, but it's because it's so precious to me. And I... You know, this could be a, the wrong impulse, but I have this feeling that to get it done, you know, I have to really horror it out, <laughs> pardon the phrase, and I don't want to because I love it and I, I want, uh, it, it feels precious and, you know, things being precious can be the enemy of good work, but, you know, like other things, it's been interesting to some theater companies and, um, you know, New York Theater Workshop worked on it with me a bit and I, I've been trying to get it off the ground in some other ways and I, I hope that happens. I'd be happy to send it to you. It's a beautiful, it's a, it is, I, I hope it's a beautiful play. Um, I, I found a lot of beauty writing it and it's also a ridiculous play. And also um, I mentioned Taylor Mac earlier. I do think it exists in that sort of theatrical tradition where the fourth wall is suspect and, um, you know, dragon and drag queen are not dissimilar. Um, <laughs> and, you know, the idea of, <laughs> yeah, that, I know. I, that, actually, that came to me like late in the press process. I was like, oh, this is, an incredible pun. <laughs> um, and, you know, this idea of, I don't know, I think of Taylor Mac and queer theatrics and uh, the role of the MC. And a lot of that sort of is a thread in Dragon. But that's Dragon. Shall I move on to gain Narcissus or, or how, how yeah, are you doing? I just, I just want to interject that I once played Smog the Dragon in a musical <gasps> version of The Hobbit 
when I was 12 and the song was called Breathe in Fire. And there's a huge, huge dragon puppet. But it was an important role because the, it was an important play because the, I was 12 and the accompanist pulled my mom aside and was like, get, get that child into voice lessons forth, you know, post haste. You know, just one of those moments of kindness, like she didn't need to do that. Like there was, you know, she was just a, it was a kind, when someone sees something within you that could be nurtured that folks around you haven't yet seen. And it was just a cool moment. So yay dragons. Let's now talk about gay narcissists. (laughs) Okay. Okay. But I just want to acknowledge that dragons are inherently queer. We can agree. Um, Agreed. And you know, arts, teachers in the arts and in the creative world are the most important and criminally undersung teachers in the world. So I'm, I'm, I'm really glad you shared that. Thank you. Uh, there is fire breathing in dragons. So really there's a lot of overlap here, but <laughs> to the point, gay narcissus. Um, okay. This piece started, I, let's just think when I was, it was still sort of, I think it was during the Omicron surge. Um, I was working on at the wedding and we had some canceled shows and some COVID exposures happening. And I was alone in the sublet that I was living at at the time. And they had a audio booth at the sublet, you know, where they would record voiceover auditions. And I hid in there for a number of hours and wrote these two songs, one about the Greek myth of Narcissus and another one about Cassandra, the prophet from Greek mythology. And I worked on them and I posted them on the internet and my beloved director friend and collaborator from Philly who I've known for, oh my God, almost, let's see, over 10 years at this point, Brenna Geffers. She runs a company called Diecast, which is an immersive uh, experimental theater company in Philly. Their work's amazing. Brenna reached out and was like, hey, I want to work on these songs with you. And fast forward, we got a residency at uh, the Orchard Project. Uh, we were at Skidmore College in Saratoga Springs last year, I guess. No, this year, earlier this year. And we, you know, worked on the songs and expanded the palette of the songs and wrote more songs and created this piece together about a bard who I play, who is on their way to Hades to try to change the end of the narcissist myth. And I'm coming at it from an angle of Narcissus has always felt a little queer, a little trans to me. You know, it's about looking in the mirror and encountering your own reflection and finding love for it. And notably, it ends in death or almost like a almost a suicide. And that is so often a part of trans narratives that I, I don't know, I got stuck on that. And so it, it's a way into talking about that. But through Greek mythology, I feel like I trick people into uh, thinking about gender because we're talking about the Greeks. And yeah, it's it's expanded a lot. We did a showing of it in Providence a couple months ago as part of the uh, Spectrum Theater Ensemble, an incredible neurodivergent theater company down there who we have a relationship with, had us come and sort of debut the piece. And we, we did it in a bar in the basement. And now we're shopping it around and trying to keep working on it. It's been, it's been fun. <laughs> it's my first time in a, in a minute I've made a lot of solo work in in my life, but never a musical. So this is a new experiment for me. Congratulations. I mean, you can see some of the pieces. I know that I saw at least one piece, one song, or maybe it was a supercut of some of the 
songs from this online. And so if people want to check it out, they should. Ah, shucks. Yeah. No, it is. I have a little, like we made a trailer for the piece based on the, the run we did in Providence that's on Instagram and, you know, also on my website. And I've actually spent the past year, you know, taking those original tracks that I recorded in that sound booth and getting them mastered. So I'm hoping to release them on Spotify this year. And it's funny now they're a little distanced from the theatrical version of the songs, you know, they're like a a bit of an archive, but they're also the starting point. And so it's, it's fun and weird that I have them as like a, a little bit of the history of the piece. And now I'll get to put them on the internet. (laughs) Hopefully more people will find them. Oh, amazing. Amazing. This makes my heart happy. Uh, Yay. 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 Uh, Before, (laughs) as we sort of wind down here with our time together, before I ask you where folks can find you online, I have three random questions. And the first one is, do you have any bucket list roles that you are just very very hungry to play in case they are there are producers at the ready listening to this who are ready to draft uh, an offer letter well okay this is funny because you mentioned it earlier but i want to play hamlet so bad <laughs> um, i know i know i'm like uh totally a parody of myself but no i love hamlet i worked on some of his stuff his speeches in grad school and you know, there's also like a legacy of, you know, queer people playing that part. And I'm so that that's a big one on the list. I, I admit, for better or worse, I'm, I'm such a Shakespeare junkie. And so I would love to play Macbeth or Lady Macbeth. Any part in that show, really. What else? I love King Lear. That's like my favorite play of all time, which says a lot about me. Um, so those are on the list. But um I would say an Oxford man is a dream role though. I will, I will tell you it's been a gift and the time I've gotten to spend on it already has been really special. So there you go. There's one from the past and one from the future. <laughs> Noted. Uh, I'll I, add one more thing. Oh yeah, please. I, I really, I, I had this feeling watching, I was rewatching, um, what's it called? Pirates of the Caribbean and was like, you know, I really want to play a pirate. And then Your Flag Means Death is out now. So this is a, yeah. a call to those folks that I'm, I'm interested and I'm available. <laughs> Come on, Taika and Reese, make it happen. David yeah. Jenkins, where are you? Yeah, bring- <laughs> okay, now thank you. Thank you for indulging that. <laughs> of course, of course. I am very impressed by your parallel parking skills. And the way that you chronicle them on Instagram, do you have any tips? I feel like parallel parking is very performative. Like I get performance anxiety while I do it, but any any insights on, on parking in a big city that you want to share? I love this question. This is this is the stuff I really um and yes, it is totally it's a it's a performance act. I, you know, it depends on the car. I've gotten very lucky. I have a Subaru because of course, and it has a backup camera and that has allowed me to really push the envelope. So, you know, without the, I recently parked a friend's car that didn't have a backup camera and I was total rubbish at it. So, you know, you have to get used to the car you're using, but my, my big tip would be, even if you don't think you can fit in there, you might be able to fit in there for better or for worse. So, you know, don't, don't, don't knock it until you try it. 
I also find it's very helpful to just get out of the car and look at the space with your car next to it and be like, okay, actually I can fit in here. <laughs> it's just going to take some courage, <laughs> but there's nothing like getting a spot and then uh, the people on the sidewalk applauding. That's sort of like, there's, there's, you know, there's doing a show, there's curtain call, there's, you know, if you get a big curtain call and then there's when someone gets out of their car or off the sidewalk and claps at your parking job. And that, that's the pinnacle right there. Right there. Right there. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) And my final random question is, I saw under your special skills, I believe it was making wholesome breakfasts uh, or similar language. If you're making a wholesome breakfast for someone you've just met, what is your curation strategy? Okay. So I love this question. For me, it's all about how do they like their eggs? So I would, I would start with that. And then based on the answer, I think I would craft from there. I love a breakfast bowl. I love breakfast potatoes or hash browns. I love a black bean sour cream situation. So, you know, it would depend on the egg. I personally, I like over medium egg, but you know, I'll make them poached. I'll make them scrambled. I'll make them however anyone might like them. And also if they're vegetarian, like I love bacon. I often am incorporating bacon in the breakfast. Also, we could take a huge left turn. I love to make blueberry pancakes. I make really great pancakes. <laughs> so the, the the possibilities are endless, I'd say. But I do love to make breakfast. <laughs> That's incredible. Has anyone ever asked about any of your special, more entertaining <laughs> special skills that might be less traditional than one would think on your resume? Yeah. I haven't. And it's a missed opportunity because <laughs> there's some really strange stuff on there, <laughs> which, uh, you know, intelligent and uh, discerning people like you have brought to the forefront. So thank you for that. No one has ever asked about my breakfast making. Uh, no one has ever asked. I think I say that I can do the worm, which is true. And I think I say that I can do Pixar impressions that might still be there. Yes. Uh yeah, and you know, I'm waiting for the day that I can pull that out in an audition and it has not yet come. Just <laughs> just around the corner, I think. I I all this isn't a question, but just an appreciation. I appreciate the second page of your resume that is basically like what you have to, what you have just <laughs> seen is a traditional theatrical resume. There is so much more and here is where you can find it. I'm paraphrasing, but I love how that sort of links this is a great sort of going out outro kind of thing. I love how that links to agency in mm-hmm. terms of how you are presenting yourself. And there's no one right way to communicate the actor information. And so like shout out to the second page of your resume. Thank you. I That came from an application where I was supposed to send like a CV of everything I made and I think it was more as a playwright and I was like okay what am I going to do here am I going to make a whole new resume you know is that actually an accurate way to talk about myself so I I sort of just made a disclaimer page (laughs) because it's so funny like the way we're supposed to this is the first thing you asked me like how do I introduce myself and it kind of depends on like what I'm auditioning for so yeah that thank you for that (laughs) that's very affirming of my I don't know my my big chaotic you know art space and how do we like codify it and fit it into boxes so people know what they're looking at yes true true i'll share this was a gift that was given to me i will give it to you it was given to me by the 
uh, CEO at the new, oh, executive director at the new job I have in my final interview, he was like, oh, you're, you're an artistic entrepreneur. Like he comes from startup spaces and you are absolutely an artistic entrepreneur. And so like throw that into the mix too. Ooh, thank you. A new title. I didn't know I'd get a new title today. That's I love on under- <laughs> yeah. We aim to please at this podcast. What is, what uh, is this? What is this job you're doing? I'm sorry, that's not relevant to theater, but I, no, maybe it is no, relevant. It is. It is. Yeah. It, um, so it's a really cool organization based in Wisconsin. It's called Islands of Brilliance, and they've been doing cool stuff for about 11 years. And so they support and empower autistic and neurodivergent teens and young adults with programming that centers on creativity, technology, and collaboration, and sort of the idea of sitting with and and following and yes-anding special interests instead of, I think, a lot of programming that supports autistic people is, and I'm saying this as as an autistic person, late in life diagnosed, it's sort of like, I don't know. It's sort of like theater, right? Like I want to be in a room where I'm devising stuff and 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 collaborating and and anyone can have the best idea. I don't do as well with like hierarchical structures. And so they do really cool programming. And so they're expanding it across the state and I am helping them do that. So my official title is statewide outreach manager. God, that's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. That's so badass. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. I can yeah. not take a compliment. Uh, <laughs> very hard. It's very hard, particularly in the digital space. So. <laughs> oh, yeah. This has been amazing. This is so great. This is so wonderful. And I hope that folks who have listened to this get that spark to create that thing on because of that hopefully queer bad inside joke like i think that's the takeaway here y'all uh one of many many. (laughs) so if folks want to find you online we'll have some links in the episode description but let's shout it out for them here too as we as our time comes to an end Absolutely. Um, you can find me on the internet. My website's easy to remember. It's just my name, handvanskyver.com. Um, my Instagram handle comes from, it used to just be my name, but people see Han and they think Han because Han Solo. Um, and so, yeah, it's the whole thing. Um, but my Instagram handle is rhymes with man, rhymes period with period man. You can find me there and you can find sad Han on my personal page i link to it but if you want to find it separately at sad underscore underscore han and thereabouts you'll find links to all sorts of things uh i have a patreon that is a wonderful way to you know kind of keep keep myself making and get a little monetary support while i do that so there's also a link to my patreon on my website and also on my instagram should you wish to subscribe (laughs) which you're a subscriber aren't you i am yeah yeah Oh, I was look. I was pulling up your email uh, to sign on today, and I was like, "Oh yeah, Woodsticks is three dollars a month, people." <laughs> the, it's one of the cheaper tickets. For the cost of <laughs> a latte, uh, you can have access to unlimited hours of, you know, real, real sad hand, that sad hand in real time. <laughs> worth it. No. Uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you. 
Yeah, thank you so much for this time together and have a very, very queer day. (laughs) You as well. Thank you for having me and thanks for making this space. You betcha. Thank you for listening to the Theatrical Mustang Podcast. I'm your host and producer, Woodzik. This podcast is distributed by American Theatre Magazine, and this episode was edited by Travis Rosemary Kerhard Fischbach. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you back here next month for more interviews with artists and cultural trailblazers.